This is John Miller, editor with the Taos News. And Welcome this year, to as Voices every year, we are asking for the public My name to support is Laura Martin Baseman, and I'm the producer of this new podcast from the Taos News. Partnership between every newspapers week, and we will be bringing you a voice from our Taos community. Taos News provides Our guest this about a thousand newspapers to students in Taos County every week. Filmmaker, musician, and songwriter. He lives in Taos and he grew up in northern support Mexico. Is so appreciated. His most recent donate, project is a documentary film, and we wish everyone a happy the holiday. The Hemisaro Experience: Shadows and Light. Welcome, Gary. Good to be here. Thank you. Thanks yeah. for having me. Yeah. So you know, um, growing up in northern New Mexico, I had never heard the term "hinicero" before I watched the film. Could you define that term for us and what it means? Well, that'd be hard to define it, but I, what see the the, the term "hinicero" is actually kind of a, a Spanish version of "janissary," J A N I S S A R Y. And the Janissaries um, were young boys, young Christian boys during the Ottoman Empire that were ripped out of their homes, captured, taken slaves as 10-year-old boys, and uh, thrust into Islam. So they were converted to Islam, and they were trained as soldiers. So they became the private army for the sultan. So that's the backstory, the, the, the history of, of the term which later was was brought to New Mexico during the Reconquest and de Vargas as he took captives, these young native boys, 10-year-old boys, took them out of their homes, right, and um, basically gave them this term, henicero. Well, that's pretty amazing to think of, you know, the European history and the um, Central Asian history affecting, you know, New Mexico and that colonial experience as well. So they were taken out of their homes and used as military. And then what happened to these young people? Well, the law of the Indies, when the Spanish first arrived, they were so far away from Spain. So they basically could do whatever they wanted. And although it was illegal to take indigenous captives, because the, the Spain um, uh, made it illegal this to happen, but they were so far away, they did what they wanted. And when they came to New Mexico, they justified uh, slavery through either um, war, taking war captives, see the loophole, or they would take ransom captives. We're going to save these people. And that would have been okay if they saved them and stopped there, but they didn't save them in freedom. They said, we're going we're gonna to save these people, but they're going to owe us. So we're going to put them to work in Spanish households, and for 20 years they're going to work off this debt because we saved them. So it was two basic uh, roads for the, the early indigenous slavery, and the Geniceros themselves, the first Geniceros were these young boys that were taken captive and justified through war, but it was also uh, women and children. And so the name Genicero became Genicera, so it was both male and female, and trade fairs got involved. So it gets more complex, and we talk about that in the film. Absolutely. And you say in the film how many people have Genicero heritage Mm -hmm. in New Mexico. Mm -hmm. And it's amazing that for something that's so prominent, how little is known about that heritage as well. How did you find out that you had Mm. Genicero heritage? Wow, that's a really good point because that's kind of the the whole objective of the of our film screening, um, you know, tonight, uh, Friday, December fifteenth at the TCA is is to educate the community because a lot of the community does not even realize 
their ancestry, that this exists. It's a, the mix of Spanish and Native American. Um, me personally, uh, my grandmother, uh, when we go to visit her in Cuesta, she didn't talk a lot, but when she was in the kitchen, she talked. And she was light on her feet, and she'd make tortillas, you know, and she'd be cooking and telling stories. And because I, I, I maybe it's because I, I wasn't there as much as my, my local, um, you know, primos and primas, you know, um, my cousins. Maybe she was just more open with me. So basically she told me stories about our indigenous ancestors that were taken captive, you know, uh, grandmothers, great-great-grandmothers that were taken captive. So that's where it started. Now, flash forward, when I went to school at the Institute of American Indian Arts, I'm searching for a final thesis, Okay. So I'm like, what am I going to do? And my, my grandma's spirit, my abuela's spirit, kept kind of like coming to me. So I went to the library to research indigenous slavery. And that's when I found several books, you know, Nacion Hanisara by uh, Moises Gonzalez and Enrique La Madrid, you know, and a few others. And so I learned the term Hanisaro. I had never heard it before. She never used the term. Um, so I went back to a, my class and I said, by a show of hands, how many of you have ever heard of Henisaros? And it was all First Nation students, all indigenous students from around the world. And um, no hands went up. It was just, uh, wow. just blank faces. And I knew then and there I had this feeling, the spirit came over me, make the film, make a film. Mm -hmm. And so that's what I did. So that's where it kind of began. That's what inspired it. Totally. And well, you know, it was a new experience for you to learn about it. Was there anything in particular that you learned while you were making this film that just kind of blew your mind, something that you didn't have any idea about? Yes. As I traveled around New Mexico, I felt the spirit of my ancestors. I felt like it wasn't me who was doing this. I felt like I was being led. I was being carried almost like on wings, you know. And what I discovered was things I'd never discovered before. The first interview I did was at Canyon de, Con uh, uh, Canyon de Conway in Albuquerque. Now, Moises Gonzalez and I are standing on old Pueblo ruins that go back just, uh, hundreds, hundreds of years. And we're talking, and he mentioned some things about um, the history. So, of course, I go back and I do my research. And it turns out that in 1763, I discovered my mother's ancestors, my ancestors were one of 18 families, a mix of Spanish and Apache, that started that land grant. Oh, my goodness. And so this was just the beginning. That I, I, so I understood the history there. Okay, there's a connection, 1763. Well, this kept happening. That's why I say it's spirit-filled, because it kept happening. The next interview I did was with uh, the historian Esteban Real Galvez. Incredible man. Knowledgeable, just amazing. And the first thing we did when he sat down is he says, he goes, so, uh, how's your uncle doing? How's your Uncle Manuel doing? Who was in the film. He goes, I said, how do you know my uncle? He goes, oh, we grew up two doors down from your grandmother's house. I go, what? She goes, yeah. Yeah, we knew your, your grandparents. My, my mother loved your grandparents. And it turns out my grandfather managed the store that his great-grandfather owned. Oh, my goodness. Awesome. So things like that kept happening throughout. And I found my connections and my relations as it unfolded. I found I was related to many people 
that I was even interviewing. So just a, a larger community that is kind of getting discovered to itself almost. Exactly. It's, it's what we call cadencia. It's a place of belonging. And I started to discover this, this place of belonging. And so it became deeper than just a documentary. It became a part of my history, and I could feel my ancestors the whole time through. And one thing led to another, and, and it just started to grow and kind of snowball. And um, it, it was really a very spiritual experience for me making this film. Wonderful. Mm-hmm. And so we talked a little bit before we started about the importance of showing this film in Taos, mm-hmm. which is happening tonight at the TCA. We can encourage people to go visit the PBS website to watch it and also your YouTube channel as well? Well, no. I, I, what I would do is have them go okay. to uh, – I, I would suggest, uh, you know, all you folks go to uh, the PBS. It's online. So, Wonderful. So they can yeah. – Easy access. So what do you hope to inform Tausinos about when they watch the film? Well, again, um, knowing the history, knowing how it began, and, and I hope that people – will understand and embrace all of the aspects of their culture. And that means both Indo and Hispano, both sides. Because that's what Henisaro is all about. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a blending of spirits, so to speak. It's like, um, you know, our ancestry, you know, comes from, you know, two worlds, really. And so I hope they carry that away with them, a sense of pride and, and knowledge. And, and basically, this is just a toe in the water. Books have been written about it. This is the first film that's ever been done on on this um but it's still just a toe in the water so i'm hoping people will go oh okay that's interesting and they'll go back and research and discover for themselves because that's happened people come out of my other screenings and go wow i didn't know that my grandmother told me stories but i didn't know that so absolutely mm-hmm. it's hard sometimes when you know there are families who's the the documentation of their last names and mm-hmm. where they came from has changed. And I mm-hmm. expect with Heniceros that is also the case, you know, of people being brought out of their indigenous communities. And so they might not even know, you know, which Pueblo they were from, if they were from a Comanche family, if they were from another tribe. So, yeah, that must be a hard thing to reckon with, you know, to understand you have indigenous roots but to not know exactly where those roots start. That's really, really observant of you because that's that's at the core of Henisro identity. See, what I always say is that although the names are lost in the shadows, their stories live on in the light. So although we didn't have the names of many of them, my, my grandmother knew the stories and through oral tradition shared those stories. Now, everything in the film can be documented through historic record. Because these are the way the film is laid out is that we have scholars and historians and authors and people that have been studying this topic for, for years, for decades. And so you can go to the historic records and see the documents that are in the film. You can everything they say, because it's about them. What I've tried to do is give the people a voice. So my job was simply to to show to hold it up and to show people here's what it is. And allow the people a voice to to speak about it. And the only time in the film that I actually offer any kind of um, opinion, for the most part, is there's a couple of times where I but I bring it up as questions, like what does it mean to be Henisro? Who decides? Is it the is it the government? Is it the church? You know, is it you know nature, nurture? So just to get people thinking, and that's the kind of the the goal of this was, you know, my grandmother always told me the last words she told me. 
um, before, I mean, before she died, you know, the last word she ever told me was, remember who you are and remember where you come from. And that was the, the core of, of this film for me. Yeah. Thank you so much, um, Gary. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back. Okay. We'll be back to Voices of Taos after a brief message from our sponsor. Hi, this is Mattress Mary from Taos Lifestyle. Happy holidays. In addition to having the largest selection of furnishings and mattresses in northern New Mexico, we're also your new gift-giving headquarters with an incredible greeting card selection, custom holiday gift baskets, and so much more. Wishing you all a beautiful holiday season. Taos Lifestyle. Let it move. with Gary Medina Cook, and we are talking about his film that was produced this year, The Henicero Experience. So, Gary, when I was watching the film, I noticed how important music was to telling the story. Can you tell me a little bit about how being a composer and a musician informed your making of the film? That's, yeah, thank you for bringing that up because music is where it all started for me. I mean, at 12 years old, growing up, growing up in Santa Fe, we didn't have much. But um, on my 12th birthday, I could smell the green chili and eggs, and I knew something was up, right? So I jump out of bed, you know, and I run downstairs, and my mother had the breakfast all ready for us, and she goes, we're going to do something special today. I'm like, oh, really? Yeah. So we hopped in the station wagon. We had this red Malibu station wagon, and we drove down to northern New Mexico music, and we went in, and she negotiated with this guy. That guy was no match for her, man. <laughs> she she got a good deal on a guitar, a little classical guitar, which I still own today. And I even wrote a story about it called The Smell of, Smell of Lemon Oil because lemon oil takes me back. Whenever I smell the guitar, it has that scent. And um, it started there with music. So for me, it was great memory. And and she must have saved for months for that because we she used to make our clothes and stuff. But anyway, so that guitar led it. The guitar took me around the world. The guitar opened up so many doors for me. I traveled everywhere around the world and saw so many cultures, so many places, all because of that gift my mother gave me. And so as I went out to California and I had had my career in music, you know, um, after a couple of decades out there, um, I was just feeling like I was being pulled back to New Mexico. And I, I believe spirit pulled me back here for the purpose of this film and many other purposes, which I won't get into, but Either way, spirit brought me back, I believe, to my homeland. And while here, because I dropped out of high school when I was 16 to go off and play music. So, But when I got here, I moved back about 10 years ago, and I ended up going to UNM adult um, education, and I got my GED. So I felt that was a major accomplishment for me. And then from there, I ended up enrolling at UNM Taos, took some great classes, Thomas Shaw, great, great professor, learned so much about a lot of different things. Then I transferred to the Indian School in Santa Fe, Institute of American Indian Arts, and that's where it started with the imagery. So I always believed the power of moving images and music. When they're kind of joined together, fused together, it tells a a story that's really hard to, uh, 
you know, hard to break. I mean, it's, it's very, very deep for me. So it's, but it's still, even making this film, a lot of it started with music. I'd write a piece of music and then it would inspire an idea for a scene. So in the film, we have some great, we have Rita Coolidge does a song. We have, um, um, you know, Bill Miller, my friend, uh, three-time Grammy Award winner, one of the greatest Native American singer-songwriters, and just singer-songwriters in general. He's, he's, he's like the Bob Dylan. Mm -hmm. He's that level. Incredible. So he's in there. And, um, yeah, I mean, even my son has a song in there that he wrote and produced, and uh, it's, it's the tail end the, on the theme song on the, on the way out. But I did feel it was important to um, counter, or I should say embellish, the story with certain types of moods and certain types of compositions. So I composed probably 70% of the music and then the other 30% is different artists. Yeah. yeah. And dancing is also another aspect of the storytelling in the film. Could you tell us a little bit about the Matachin dance mm -hmm. that's yeah. happening in the film and a little bit of the history there sure. too? Sure. Yeah. Fortunately, I mean, I had, you know, I, I couldn't I couldn't include all of the footage from some of these amazing people like Dr. Brenda Romero and Enrique La Madrid. They went in deeply about the the Matachinas and the different because uh, there, there's different variations on it, but in essence. It goes back to La Malinche. In Mexico, when Cortez first came, basically she was uh, enslaved and, and turned and given to him as a gift by her own people. She was betrayed. She became an incredible linguist. She, was, she learned multiple languages. She spoke multiple languages. Um, unfortunately, she was raped. And so that's why some... Uh, patriarchs, um, misogynists, later wrote and, and betrayed her, her, her legend, so to speak, um, by calling her the violated mother and things like that. I saw her and still see her as a hero. And she embodies female power because in, in a patriarchal world, it's hard enough for women. It's been a, a, a tough journey for women. But in that kind of world, in those kind of in that time, it's incredible what she overcame. So, and to be a linguist and to find a way to overcome this stuff and the pain and the trauma, which we get into deeply into the film with Susto and other things. But basically, the Matachina dance that you see a lot, even in the pueblos, um, stems back for Henisaros to the first. She's like the first grandmother, you know, Doña Maria Marina. And for those. People who are listening who haven't seen uh, Matachina dance, like mm -hmm. what it, what actually happens in the dance? Well, there's you know it's many different things happen, but it's it's based around um, you know the the there's usually a little girl that plays the main character, you know, and then you have others taking on characters, you know, captains, and um, then there's even like in uh, Connor Way, um, they utilize humor. The abuelos are humorous, like Moises Gonzalez dressed up once as an old woman and would run around and joking with people. So, so there's a lot of humor. But, you know, Dr. Brenda Romero is going to talk about that um, at, at the film screening uh, tonight. Um, well, I guess it may be yesterday or wherever, whenever. But <laughs> <laughs> whenever people are Yeah, whenever. But, but the point is, is that I'm not an expert on it, but I did feel that it was important to allow, allow that segment to take place because it is part of the history. And a lot of people do the dances, but they don't realize where it comes from. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I 
also really enjoyed the multi-generational aspect of the film as well. You just said that your son composed some music Mm -hmm. for it and performed Mm -hmm. it. And then also um, El Comanche Mm -hmm. also had his daughter in the film Mm -hmm. dancing. Yeah, Corina. That whole family, see, uh, Francisco El Comanche Gonzalez, they've been... They've been, they're Comanche Genicero here in Ranchos de Taos, and they've been carrying on this tradition for generations. So if you go to the Ranchos Church on New Year's Day, you'll see them dancing. That's where they start. But what they do is they go around the entire community all day long, and they dance at houses of Manuel and Manuelita, and they'll dance for the people. And it's a long-standing tradition. So they're, they embrace the history. And, yes, he... Uh, he was another one of the first that I interviewed, and then his, his daughter Corina is is also a dancer, um, and then Davi, um, the whole family is, basically. So, and I, and I highlight them in the film in the rancho section because of that culture, mm-hmm. you know, the dancing that, that continues today. Speaking about multi generational stuff, I shared mm-hmm. with you during the break that. My um, best friend growing up, her mother is Camila Trujillo, who's from um, Española, and she has a lovely segment on the film. And I just wanted to say, I, as someone who has a good friend who has um, Henisera heritage, mm-hmm. it's been amazing to watch you know, the history unfold for a close friend of mine. And so I've even learned so much indirectly from this. I think... That is so incredible to me because for you to be able to, to see Camila talk and learn and know that you're, you have a connection there, it's so New Mexican. You know what I mean? It's so New Mexican. She was fantastic. And um, I tried in the film, my goal was to give both men and women a uh, voice. You know, I didn't want an imbalance. I felt because, like I said, it's it, it's important. I think that we acknowledge and recognize that, and 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 allow everyone to have their voice and their opinion. And she was great, educational, not just on Santa Cruz de la Cañada, but also on healing and the power of herbs and that type of thing. And, yeah, and susto, you know, the trauma that women faced. Absolutely, and I think to see these communities spread throughout New Mexico is so crucial as well. You have these little havens of knowledge and education about oral history and tradition like you were talking about. Something I didn't know either is that there are communities that were basically established as buffers for the Spanish populations Mm -hmm. and the more dense populated areas. And I didn't realize Ranchos was one of those Genicero Buffer zones. Yeah, it, it was uh, there. There's their stories a little different than say like Abiquiu and Conway and uh, San Miguel de Bado and Belen, but but there exists there, and you can even go and visit over near there and see um, some of the structures where they basically were, you know, protecting the community. See, the commonality here is if you go into these communities, usually you'll see a church, and then the church is surrounded by houses. And then the houses in that community, there's a big wall. Like you probably noticed in the Santa Cruz de la Cañada segment, those images, remember? They were beautiful. Yeah, with the big, big walls that surrounded the totally. church. That was for protection. Totally. And, so, and, and that was by design. That's how they, they, they did that. Um, but these buffer zones, what happened is, okay, uh, and the Geniceros, after the Reconquest, 
the Vargas started to train up these these little boys for the militia. But then the then the women and children were starting to become you know uh, house servants as well. Around see now keep in mind, you know these little boys you know, you know they by seventeen hundred. You'd think they're probably around 18 years old, you know, 18, 19, 20 years old. But by the mid-1700s, now they're, they're approaching middle age. So what does a person want to do when they're at that point? They want to settle. They want to keep fighting. They want to settle down. They're old bones. And in those days, you didn't live a long time. So what they wanted was land because that was also inbred. It's in the DNA. Land is so important in the indigenous community, you know. So they had no land. They had nowhere to go. They were landless geniseros. They had nowhere to go. Now, what did they do? They bartered their skills, their fighting skills, with um, the governor, Cachupin. And he said, okay, let me trade with Geniseros. So what he did is he gave them abiquiu. And he says, in exchange for this land, you will be the militia and you will protect us from raiding tribes. So you had these key areas. Cañón de Carwe was one of them. Belen, you had San Miguel de Barro on the east, you had Abiquiu, and even here in Ranchos, they, they did that as well. But that wasn't given by the, by the, the governor. That was gotcha. a little different. Yeah, Totally. But still a, a settlement, a more densely populated Hindu yeah, I mean, settlement. By, yeah. by the late 1700s, I'd say by almost by 1800s, one-third of New Mexicans were identified as Geniso oh in census. One-third. Amazing. Yeah. yeah. And something like we said, <laughs> we're just barely <laughs> yeah, getting to understand yeah, know, right? this. It's my, that's mind blowing to me yes. personally. So, yeah, yeah, it is. So what do you, what's next for you? What are you working on next in your future projects? Well, I've been writing a ton of music. Um, and, and I've, I've, I have a screenplay I wrote called Twin Spirits and it's a two hour film. It's, it's a, um, an action adventure film, but it's pretty deep because of course it, it, you know, the character is actually uh, mixed blood. He's uh, Hanisaro. Um, but anyway, um, it's uh, something that I've, I finished, but I'm going through it with a fine-tooth comb, and then I'm going to uh, see about uh, what I can do to get it uh, filmed, you know. So there's that. Um, I have a, a couple other short films that I've written, scripts that I want to I actually produce, you know, 12-minute 12, 12 films, and some other ideas I have. And But I have about an album, two albums worth of... Uh, new music that's been inspired over the last nine months, I guess, since doing this, you know. So just got to find the time to, to get to get that. But now the, the Henisero experience is, is growing wings, you know. And um, so now that that's, that's happening, it frees me up to do other things. So, yeah. And if people want to learn more, you know, after mm -hmm. watching the film mm -hmm. and after our discussion today, mm -hmm. where's a good place to send them? I know you mentioned a couple of books in the mm -hmm. film, but would you mind telling us the titles again? Yes, let me, uh, let's see. Uh, well, uh, Nacion Henisara um, was one. Slavery in the Southwest is another. Uh, Captives and Cousins uh, by James Brooks is really, that's, that's a really in-depth book. Um, William Kaiser's book, uh, Slavery in, uh, in the Borderlands. Um, we have Andreas, um, who did uh, The Other Slavery. He's from, uh, he's a professor out of uh, UC Davis. Uh, Kaiser's a professor out of Texas A&M. Um, so we have these, these books. So The Other Slavery is pretty deep. Also, I, I would encourage people to go to Abiquiu Library. 
because the Abiquiu Library is an incredible resource. You know, you, you can read papers by uh, Benito Cordova, who was one of the first anthropologists that talked about, he was Henicero, and he wrote books, many books, and, and, and not just like history books, but he actually wrote, you know, novels uh, about uh, different characters, you know. Um, so, yeah, I, I would start there, but there's plenty. And, you know, Miguel Torres and the Genetic uh, Genealogy Society, they don't just do DNA, but what they do is they merge your ancestry with DNA. And so they, they're doing some interesting things there. You know, um, obviously oral stories are, are, like for me, that's what how it all started. It wasn't DNA. But for some people, they that's some, somewhere they want to investigate. And I would look at the gene, gene, uh, genetic, sorry, genetic Genealogy Society on that one. Because he did, he says some interesting numbers in the film. I don't know if you saw that at the end. If you remember I that, I did absolutely. And did you see the disparate, the, the the difference between the male and the, the grandfathers and the female grandfathers? Absolutely. Grandf- well, yeah. what they calculated is that, um, and he's going to talk about this as well at the screening, um, how the, they came up with the numbers. That if your family goes back twenty generations or more in New Mexico, there's a likelihood you'd have four hundred seventy-two thousand native grandmothers. And so that's going to be an interesting topic for him to explain to the audience because uh, it goes to the, the core of, of what Heniso really is. It, it's about, I call it, the blending of spirits, walking in two worlds, you know. But there's a, a spiritual side and a resiliency that you kind of embody in the film. And I think that's the the thing that I really took away. It's not, you know, it's a, it's a very difficult history like you said they you have all this trauma that Mm -hmm. has been inherited for generations but there's something that you share with the resiliency Mm. of that Hinisaro um heritage that I find to be very powerful they're still here today and and, in all these communities and and it keeps growing because the more people know about who they are and where they come from the more they want to start to uh, honor that and embrace it and teach their children and so many of the traditions are are being revitalized. Uh, to, um, on the 16th in Carter Way, they're doing Comanche dances, you know, and that's growing because people are understanding their history and culture. Even though it was heavily Apache, they also integrated with Comanche too. And like I said, New Year's Day, Ranchos de Taos, and, and you know, it just uh, there is a resiliency. That's a perfect word for it. You know, I'm really proud of all of them and everyone in the film. And I can I can feel the ancestors, and I can I can see them in my mind's eye smiling, and and that's why I made the film. It wasn't about money or anything. It's about um, I felt that those first generation Heniso especially were forgotten, and they needed a voice. They needed someone, and then and they've had others speak about it, but not not in a film. Film is a powerful medium, and so. I give them honor and respect through this film. And I know that they fly free in the unseen world, but I think they're with, they're amongst us. They, they live amongst us as shadows and light. And that's where the title came from. Mm. Yeah. Well, that's so beautiful. And thank you so much for your time, Gary. We appreciate you. And thank you for bringing this heritage to light for mm. our community. We appreciate yeah. that very much. You're very, so. very welcome. Thanks for having me. This is awesome. Oh, I'm so great. glad. <laughs> Thank you. 
Thank you for joining us for Voices of Taos, a podcast by the Taos News, produced by Laura Martin Baseman. Our music was produced and arranged by Miles Bonney, featuring musicians Francisco Velarde, Ruben Hernandez, and Margot Macias. Please join us next week for another episode of Voices of Taos.